0: Hello everyone, and thank you once again for listening to the saga of World War II, a Cassus Belly Project. This week, we'll cover the lead-up to September 1939 and Hitler's life until he joined the Nazi party. Don't forget to visit worldwar slash chronicles That's World War, one word, the number two, Chronicles. To find all episodes and stream them on SoundCloud. You can also download them on iTunes. Just search World War II Chronicles. I also ask that you forgive me if I mispronounce any French words in this episode. I'll do my best, but I studied German in high school. Regardless, let us begin World War II Chronicles, episode two, Architect of Armageddon. Frankly and definitely there is danger ahead, danger against which we must prepare. Defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields and in the streets, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender. You'll recall that in episode one, we discussed Lloyd George's warning that surrounding Germany with small states many of which contained ethnic Germans, was a horrendous idea. Well, by 1934, his prediction was beginning to bear fruit. Hitler's first target was Austria. Like most of Europe, his homeland was politically unstable and the government weak. The Austrian Prime Minister Dolfus attempted to put a lid on unrest by banning the growing Nazi party. This had the opposite of the intended effect. At Hitler's urging, the Austrian Nazis began a violent campaign similar to those carried out by fascists in other countries. They were disruptive and combative. Their malfeasance punctuated by an attempted coup in which a 150 Nazis stormed the capital and murdered Dolphus. If it were not for the intervention of the army, Austria may have entered the Nazi orbit right then. Instead, it would be another four years before Austria folded to German whims. Following the death of Dolphus, Schuschnigg became prime minister and attempted to assuage Germany by caving to Hitler's demands. He signed a cooperation agreement in 1936, which essentially made Austria a German satellite by synchronizing Austrian foreign policy with that of Germany. The ban on the Nazi party was lifted as well. Schusnig had hoped this would be enough. He was wrong. In February of 1938, Hitler invited Schusnig to his Bavarian mountain retreat, the Ober Salzburg. Under the impression that this was something resembling a friendly state visit, Schusnig agreed. He was horrified to find that he was bullied and tormented into signing a document that essentially surrendered Austrian sovereignty. Hitler had already made arrangements with Mussolini that Italy would not interfere in Austro-German affairs. Having secured the agreement with Schusnig, German troops marched into Austria and annexed the Alpine country. The first of Hitler's conquests was complete, but his sights were immediately set upon the Sudetenland in Czechoslovakia. The ethnic Germans living in its western hills were suffering under the ruthless government in Prague, or so Hitler liked to proclaim. He was expanding Germany, but at least the Democrats were finally paying attention. Unfortunately, the man they dispatched was wholly unprepared for a threat like Adolf Hitler. Neville Chamberlain, the British Prime Minister, was the sort of politician that is usually lost to history. He was born into wealth and privilege, then spent his political career rising through the ranks of the Conservative Party until he finally fell into the prime ministership. By all accounts, he was a perfectly reasonable, thoughtful man, but not extraordinary in any way. This was not a time for ordinary men, though. When Chamberlain arrived in Berchtesgaden, he was wholly unprepared for the verbal offensive that Hitler was planning. Chamberlain was greeted charmingly enough, but when he retreated to Hitler's private chamber, the Fuhrer unleashed on him a tirade lasting hours. In the face of it, Chamberlain was aghast, but he did not cave. He did not want to go to war over the Sudetenland, but he did not deny it to Hitler either. He insisted that he could not unilaterally acquiesce, but that he had to consult with his colleagues. Hitler would have preferred that Chamberlain gave in right then and there, but at least his bluff of war wasn't called. He knew he could not yet face France, and that a fight for the well-fortified hills of the Sudetenland would be bloody. Fortunately for Hitler, Chamberlain believed his lie that the Sudetenland was his last territorial desire in Europe. So he returned to London, and his government spoke with that of the French and Russians. France was too intimidated by Germany, and Daladier knew he needed more time to prepare the ill-equipped, ill-trained French army. The Soviet Union felt no compunction to protect Czechoslovakia if the English and French wouldn't, and so agreed to allow Germany her claims. So on September 30th, 1938, Hitler and Mussolini met with Chamberlain and Daladier in Munich. They were there to impose terms on the Czech government, who were present simply to sign. They voiced their protest, but no one bothered to listen. After gaining the Sudetenland, Hitler pledged not to expand Germany any more. Chamberlain returned to England and famously announced, quote, I believe it is peace for our time. The Second World War was only one year away. There were few who were prescient enough to know there would be no peace. The first Lord of the Admiralty resigned, and Winston Churchill called it an unmitigated defeat. And of course, the Sudetenland was not the dictator's last claim. In March, Germany annexed all of Czechoslovakia except for the eastern province of Teschen, which Poland absorbed. Next, Hitler strong-armed Lithuania into ceding him Memel on the Baltic coast. Mussolini, for his part, demanded the small Adriatic nation of Albania. In the face of this, All the protest the democracies could muster was when President Roosevelt asked the dictators not to take any more land for 10 to 20 years. Unsurprisingly, the fascists ignored this. And why should they have taken Roosevelt seriously? The president was certainly not blind to the threat of fascism, but the country as a whole was blissfully ignorant. That year, the House of Representatives introduced a bill to amend the Constitution, making a declaration of war subject to a popular vote. Can you imagine if after Pearl Harbor, the United States had to wait for a referendum to be held and votes to be tallied before being able to respond? Fortunately, the measure failed, but it still received 188 votes. The United States had demonstrated that it did not have the stomach for war. The first sign of any backbone came two weeks after Hitler entered Prague, when France and the United Kingdom guaranteed Poland's independence. In retrospect, history always seems inevitable. Mussolini and Hitler were destined to rise to power. England and France were fated to acquiesce. Poland was doomed to fall. But that is a poor understanding of history that denies us the ability to learn its lessons. There is no such thing as destiny. Everything happens as a result of dynamic systems. The dictators were able to capture the zeitgeist of the 1920s and 30s and exploit the economic and social dynamics of post-war Europe. The democracies were weak because of internal divisions resulting from those same social and economic systems. This is where the two schools of historical thought meet, where the great men meet the overarching trends. There were certainly deeper phenomena at work in 1939 than simply the will of Hitler, who no doubt was the single greatest cause of the Second World War, but not the only one. He didn't manufacture a world war from scratch. He was guided there not by destiny, by the actions of others and the conditions of his time. Opposition to him collapsed at every turn. The democracy seemed to possess an instinct only to acquiesce, allowing him to take what he wanted, when he wanted. Internally, Germany's generals slowly surrendered their authority until the Wehrmacht became his personal army, and not just the German army. The general staff was actually quite resistant to him at first. They thought realm was a suicidal concept that would yield nothing but ruin for Germany. They thought the occupation of Czechoslovakia a ridiculous exercise, But when the Czech government capitulated, it rendered the German generals impotent, and the army fell deeper into Hitler's personal sway. The Poles were the first real obstacle Hitler had faced since his rise to power in 1933. When he demanded they surrender their corridor to the sea, they refused. When the French and British pledged their strength to defend the Poles, it only infuriated Hitler. They had been so accommodating until now, but suddenly they had the gall to oppose him? Not that there was much the Anglo-French guarantee could do, The French Air Force was capable of little more than sightseeing, and neither nation had any real means of reinforcing Polish troops. Stalin had no interest in pledging his support for Poland, not without getting anything in return anyway. Not that the Poles would have necessarily welcomed Russian assistance, Red Army troops usually signaled a country had become a Soviet satellite. Hitler still felt he needed to neutralize the communist threat, though, leading to the now infamous molotov ribbentrop Pact. When Hitler backed off his claims on Poland, the Allies interpreted this as a monumental victory. They had stopped the Fuhrer in his tracks. No more would the world stomach such blatant conquest. July of 1939 was a month of celebration across Britain and France. Parties were held at the Polish embassies. Balls were thrown and galas held. Bastille Day of 1939 commemorated the 150th anniversary since the symbol of monarchical tyranny was toppled and a fitting triumph was held. A massive parade was held in Paris. 30,000 soldiers from across the French and British empires trooped the line along the Champs-Élysées. The palette of uniforms resounded with the bright majesty and flamboyance of the Napoleonic era. Zouaves marched in step with their brilliant scarlet pants inspired by Algerian auxiliaries. The cadets of the military academy sported their distinctive white-plumed kepis, and the legionaries of the Légion Étrangère proudly strutted with their beards and axes. Following them were territorial troops, the Senegalese, Madagascar, and Vietnamese Tirailleurs, and the Desert Spahis from the Levant. Along with French units marched British, including the Grenadiers, Welsh, Irish, Coldstream, and Scots guards, led by the Royal Marine Band. To top it off, an armada of 315 aircraft roared overhead. It was an impressive show of strength, but it belied the fact that few of the units were prepared for an actual war. The small, professional army of the British was experienced, but hardly sufficient to fight a continental war, and the French army was rotten to the core. The old adage that armies prepare to fight the last war was never truer than of the French army in 1939. They had learned nothing from their victory in 1919, and their army was designed to fight the First World War. Armor and aircraft were afterthoughts, more modern curiosities than co-equal with the valiant infantry and regal artillery. The Germans, on the other hand, were supremely interested in learning their lessons. They realized that the superiority of the defense in the First World War had been their undoing. The Schlieffen Plan was predicated on the German army's ability to maneuver and strike quickly, but the technology at the time did not allow for it. To correct for this, the Wehrmacht invested heavily in offensive capability and developed the now infamous lightning war tactic Blitzkrieg. This would allow them not only to bypass fixed defenses, but also destroy enemy command and control nodes. The Germans also improved upon the developments they had made in small unit tactics during the first war. Stormtroopers were developed in the second half of the war to exploit enemy weaknesses. Junior officers and NCOs were given a high degree of autonomy in order to allow them to exploit any local breakthrough, creating a sort of intel pull rather than command push flavor to their operations. In addition, the Wehrmacht had the remarkable innovation of organizing their tanks into armored divisions. Until then, armor had always acted in an infantry support role, with tanks farmed out to infantry battalions. The Wehrmacht was the first military to group tanks and armored personnel carriers into large formations. Add to this the German proficiency with tactical bombing using their now famous Stuka dive bombers, and the Germans had a deadly efficient war machine. These combined armed strike forces could penetrate enemy weak points, destroy command and control nodes, then interdict supply lines while the light infantry moved up and dislodged the decapitated enemy formations. All the while, bombers would target population centers to drive the population out and clog the roads, rendering them useless to retreating units. Hitler's personal contribution to these military developments is questionable, but he did certainly understand the need to demoralize the enemy population. He was a student of Sherman's drive to the sea and knew that the best way to win a battle was to never have to fight it at all. He was a practitioner of total war, in which the entire enemy capacity to wage war is the target, not just his soldiers and his supplies. He is quoted as having said that, quote, "...mental confusion, contradiction of feeling, indecisiveness, panic. These are our weapons." Little did the democracy suspect, after their July festivities, that fascism had not been defeated, merely inconvenienced. Far from being cowed, Hitler had only grown more cunning. They never suspected that fascists would make common cause with communists. If there was one group that totalitarian nationalists couldn't stand more than liberal democrats, it was totalitarian socialists. But so it was. Stalin was willing to entertain Hitler's embassy Joachim von Ribbentrop, for the only thing that could overcome the animosity between their ideologies was their own self-interest. Von Ribbentrop's skill as a diplomat hardly accounted for the success of the deal, he was a well-known incompetent who owed his position more to his groveling to Hitler than for any particular skill. Goering called him a dirty little champagne peddler, and Mussolini reportedly said that you only have to look at his head to tell that he has a small brain. Nonetheless, he was able to negotiate a deal with Stalin, who was sufficiently turned off by the democracies, that did not want to embrace his support for their anti-fascist overtures in the years prior. Having been rejected, he felt no compunction in making arrangements with the Germans. The non aggression pact on its own suited him well enough. The Soviet Union was weakened by his purges and needed time to recover. The secret territorial arrangements were icing on the cake. Stalin was happy to cede Lithuania and half of Poland to Germany in return for the eastern half of Poland and the remaining Baltic states. On August 23, 1939, it had only been six weeks since the Allies' self congratulatory parade on Bastille Day when the Russo German non aggression pact was announced. Hitler was ecstatic overjoyed, and even a bit overcome with disbelief. The leaders of democracy were distraught. They had not even the slightest inkling that there was communication between Berlin and Moscow. Their intelligence apparatus detected nothing even suggesting cooperation. They had to react, though. Britain and France began mobilization, despite Ribbentrop's insistence to Hitler that the English would not go to war under any circumstance. Soldiers were recalled from leave, colonial and dominion governments were alerted, and the old First Lord of the Admiralty assumed his position with a message to the fleet, Winston is back. The old bulldog was now a part of Chamberlain's war cabinet, which bode the seriousness of the situation to the Germans. Hermann Goering is said to have remarked, This means war is really on. So the heat of August saw soldiers drilling in the fields and commanders reviewing their war plans. Civilian populations prepared themselves for war and stashed away their valuables. Everyone knew war was on the horizon but the only person who knew the precise date of its coming was the architect of Armageddon himself, Adolf Hitler. Adolf Hitler was born on April 20th, 1889, to Clara Pölzl and Aloy Hitler. Aloy, formerly Schickelgruber, was a middling bureaucrat in the Austrian finance ministry, and his mother, the granddaughter of Aloy's patron, Johann Hutler, from whom Aloy took his name. Adolf was Clara's third child, but the first to survive infancy, and she showered him with motherly affection, and he loved her immensely for it. His father, on the other hand, was what we today would call a hard-ass. He tormented little Adolf in his childhood, who was happy to see his father leave to take up a post in Linz when he was about five years old. This was a happy time for young Adolf. He could enjoy his mother's love without interruption, and dote on his new younger brother Edmund, who he grew to love very much. This idyllic period would not last long, though, and Aloy would soon move the family to a farm near Linz, after resigning from the finance ministry. Here, he was enrolled in a school where he was studious and well-behaved. Before long, Aloy again moved the family to a new farm, hoping it would be more productive, and enrolled Adolf in the monastic school. At the monastery, young Adolf found himself enraptured by the ritual of the church. He was captivated by the monk's chanting and the grandiose architecture. He was spellbound by daily mass, and something deep inside him came to understand the power of repetition and group worship. This would also be where he first came into contact with the swastika. The Hakenkreuz, as it is called in German, was embedded in the coat of arms of the abbot, and little Hitler was quite captured by it. The mesmerizing, hooked cross burrowed into his psyche, where he would stay for decades, until it was turned 45 degrees and made into a symbol of evil. By his 10th birthday, the family had moved once again, and Adolf no longer attended the religious school, but instead the local Volksschule. He was fine until the tragic death of his brother Edmund. The loss of his beloved younger brother changed something in the young boy. His studies suffered, and his personality became more extreme. Or once he was simply quiet, he was now antisocial. He craved his mother's love more than ever, and his disdain for his father grew to hatred. He withdrew into himself, And his hobby of drawing. The once excellent student gave up reading and turned his back on his teachers, resulting in him receiving poor marks at Realschule, the contemporary secondary school. At age 12, he decided he was done with academia and wanted to pursue art. Aloy would not humor it and forced his son to remain in school and complete his studies, hoping that Adolf would one day be the family breadwinner. Adolf reluctantly resumed his studies, and the only thing that seemed to catch his attention was military history. He was fascinated with the accoutrements of the military. He loved reading about the Franco-Prussian War, the glorious battles which he recreated in his mind. He discovered Karl May, who wrote extensively about the American West, and was enthralled by the cavalry and their Indian enemies. It was during this time that he first began to romanticize and fetishize the military. He also became somewhat mischievous during his stay in Real and began to tease and prank his classmates. Oddly, he also seemed to fancy himself a leader and demanded his fellow pupil's subservience. Early in 1901, Aloy died. Adolf was not even 13 years old and not prepared to assume a role as family patriarch. Clara was well positioned though and managed the family's affairs well enough. She used her husband's pension to support her and her children and sent Adolf away to a boys' school. This had no effect on his grades, however, not only was his schoolwork suffering, but he had turned his back on the church as well. Perhaps he had lost faith after the death of his brother, or maybe he felt betrayed by God that he would let his beloved sibling die. Whatever the cause, he hated the church. At age 16, he finished Rial Shula and was given his diploma, partially as a means of ensuring the insolent and arrogant teen wouldn't return. That night he went out to celebrate, and in a drunken stupor, tore his diploma in half and then wiped his ass with it. The next day he returned to school, to ask for a replacement. Humiliatingly, the schoolmaster had the original in hand. He gave Adolf a dressing down he would remember and resent for the rest of his life. When he finished school, he moved with his mother to Linz, and began to dabble in art and attend the opera. Unsurprisingly of the child that loved books about glorious victories of the German army and the Franco-Prussian war, Adolf loved Wagner. Epic tales of ancient Germanic adventure and glory were nectar to his soul. He also spent much of his time at the library, where he consumed books on everything from art history to philosophy. His favorite subject by far, though, was mythology, especially Norse. For a time, these pursuits soothed his aching for purpose, but this would be shattered when the dual catastrophes of his young adulthood occurred. First, in 1907, the Vienna Academy of Fine Arts rejected his application. Then only weeks later, his mother died of cancer, and his dream and his solace were dead. After his mother's death, he moved to Vienna, where he found freedom for the first time in his life. Unlike Mussolini, though, he did not engage in rampant drinking and fornicating. In fact, according to his friend August Kubizek, he was something of a teetotaler and despised loose women. Not that any of them could win him anyway. His edifice complex ran too deep. No woman could live up to St. Clara. This is also when his anti-Semitism first manifested itself. Despite quite admiring the works of many Jewish artists and composers, perhaps he blamed his rejection from the Academy for the Arts on those Jewish artisans. He would spend the next three years as a hopeless vagrant, living in various shelters and men's homes. These were hard, sad times for him. He was destitute, hungry, constantly dirty, and disheveled. His mental state seems to have deteriorated as well, he became prone to launching into furious tirades at his fellow lodgers, who soon learned how to provoke and mock the deranged Hitler. The humiliation he suffered there only added to his already damaged personality. To compound his problems, he was also due for compulsory military service. Rather than face a fine and serve a two-year prison sentence followed by military service anyway, he escaped to live with his estranged brother in England. Little is clear about this time in Hitler's life, but it seems plausible that he convinced his sister to give him her ticket that their brother had bought for her. Though, as far as I'm aware, there is some debate as to whether Hitler ever actually lived in Liverpool. Regardless, he was back on the mainland living in Munich at the outbreak of the First World War. Though he wasn't a German citizen, he petitioned the King of Bavaria to grant him an enlistment in the 16th Bavarian Reserve Infantry. It is a little odd that a young man, who had just spent several years as a draft dodger, now volunteered for his military service. But to the young Hitler, this made perfect sense. He was on the run from the Austrian army, a backward monarchy from a country he detested. He was joining the glorious German army that he came to idolize in his childhood. He served faithfully as a courier, and though he was not in the constant danger of the trenches, he did risk his life every time he carried messages to the front. In 1916, he was wounded and spent time in Munich recovering from his injuries. There, he became embittered by the population's weariness for war. He found that same weariness upon returning to the army and became something of a loner. He was wounded once again in Belgium when he was temporarily blinded in a gas attack. During his convalescence, he was inconsolable and sank into deep depression. Slowly his eyesight would return, as would his will to live. It was while in hospital that communism began to spread across Germany. He viewed the communists as traitors to the Reich and gravitated toward the growing nationalist movement. He was released from the hospital and became an active agent for the nationalists that ran the army. He rose within the ranks and was sent to an indoctrination school where he learned about Germany's sacred destiny and how Jewish bankers had financed and orchestrated Germany's ruin. While attending the school, he refined his oratory. No longer were they rants of a madman, but rather impassioned arguments. He now had his raison d'etre, but he needed structure for it, some organization to harness his drive. The National Socialist German Workers' Party was born in the din of semi-revolution that overcame Munich in 1919. When Hitler arrived at its Beer Hall Clubhouse in September of that year, it was in the capacity of a spy for the army, but he would soon join the ranks. By this time, he was nearly fully formed, and many people have tried in vain to find the source of Hitler's malevolence. What was it that first created his spark of evil? There are many theories, many that attempt to point the finger at one particular cause, but I believe that task is futile. As far as I'm concerned, Hitler was an emotionally damaged man who had an abusive father and who never processed the death of his brother. As he grew older, he became more hostile to the world. The world became more hostile to him and left him alone to brood. He was looking for something to blame and for some purpose in his life. German nationalism offered him purpose and anti-Semitism gave him a scapegoat for his own personal ills and that of his tribe. Some may not find this satisfying, but I believe it is the best explanation anyone can offer. In our next installment, we will examine Hitler's rise through the ranks of the Nazi party and their early years. Then we return to 1939 and the beginning of the war.